This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today my guest is Kate Copsey, who was the former hostess of this show and left to do other things. She is just, you've been all over the place, Kate. You've got now two books out in one year. That's some feat. And you've been traveling to beat the band. Where have you been, Kate? Uh, well, um, you know, we've been in Ohio, and now we're in New Jersey, and hoping to go back south uh, to grow, because it's a much longer uh, season down there. Um, and obviously up in um, Ohio, it was uh, very snowy for quite a while, unless it was like this year, which is an El Nino year, um, which made uh, winter very tolerable, I think, for many people, although the prostate itself didn't actually shift. Um, it does make life a lot more, shall we say, pleasant when you can see um, the garden most of the year and you can see the kale, which keeps going and going, uh, and the garlic out there. It just makes life a little bit, shall we say, more pleasant. <laughs> More pleasant, I would certainly agree with that, and that's one of the reasons I enjoy living in the South so much, um, even though I have lived in the Midwest and up in, in your neck of the woods, um, a little bit farther north of you in New Jersey, but um, this year I am not enjoying summer at all. It was <laughs> close to 100 degrees yesterday. It, it was 98, and, of course, with the heat index, it was just impossible. And then it's supposed to be like that today again, and it's been like that for a couple of weeks. And we've not had enough rain to wet the bottom of the rain gauge in weeks. Oh, wow. Well, we, we have actually been quite warm, sort of the low 90s, but a front came through yesterday. Um, I think it was yesterday, so this humidity has dropped right down, and we're going to be in the low 80s today, and then it builds up again towards um, 95, 96 towards the weekend, so another heat wave. I think up here they call a heat wave um, three days in the 90s. That's a, a heat wave, so this will be the second one um, in about, about four weeks. <laughs> uh, you know, people don't realize that New Jersey gets very, very hot and humid in the summer, much like um, Georgia does. But in New Jersey um, and New York, you've got the advantage that the temperature breaks fairly frequently. So instead of days and nights, you know, in the 90s and 70s for months on end, you get it for a few weeks, uh, a few days in a week, maybe a whole week. And then, as you said, a thunderstorm will come through and a little front and it will be a cool front and cool things down. Well, that's right, and the, the winter is usually cold enough for things like um, to grow um, rhubarb and um, French tarragon and, of course, lilacs, which all like um, a certain amount of, of winter to get through to the next year. 
um, rather than the southern winters, which really aren't warm enough, oh, sorry, are really not cold enough for long enough, that those things actually um, will thrive. I mean, they, they sometimes will, will be okay for a couple of years, and there are some varieties of French tarragon that, you know, if you keep them in a container, they will get cold enough. But generally speaking, in the south, things like um, rhubarb don't thrive too well. And, in fact, mine is looking not nearly as healthy this year because we had, as I mentioned, the El Nino winter. And so we're, we're in what I, I like to call a, a kind of a happy land <laughs> between the north and the south um, because we can also grow some of the southern ornamentals like crepe myrtles, um, which makes it kind of a, a nice, uh, just a sliver of the, the areas. So, you know, you get the best of both worlds here. Um, but I think as you go further south, you know, you miss out on, or there are tricks, I think, for things like French tarragon, where you can substitute the Mexican tarragon, which is an annual, um, and not in the Artemisia uh, family, but it's in the uh, marigold family. But it's got that same really nice um, tarragon flavor, um, as against the, um, the Russian tarragon, which is kind of a weed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Russian tarragon to me doesn't have any taste. I've grown the um, Mexican tarragon down here a few times, but as you say, it is an annual, and I don't use enough of it to really find it worthwhile you know, with all the other seeds starting that I do in the springtime. Who needs it? <laughs> Yes, and of course you get the bonus of it having pretty little marigold flowers, so you can kind of just use a border of it, um, which kind of, you know, if you're in a small property, it actually looks respectable, almost like a marigold, and then you can go out and pick it. And of course the deer don't uh, eat it either, which is another bonus. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a bonus for a lot of people. And speaking of deer, reminds me, how did your how did your battle with your woodchuck turn out? The last time you were with us, you were talking about woodchucks. Uh, yes. Um, well, last year we thought we had succeeded by we've got the fence all the way around the vegetable garden, um, and he managed to get underneath it. So we put um, if you cut up we cut up chicken wire, and curled one side at the bottom of the fence so that it came through with the raw edge about two inches above the ground level and the raw edge was on about sort of 18 inches out uh, and that worked for last year but I guess winter has kind of rearranged things uh, particularly the gate and I noticed him we'd been away just for a couple of days and I noticed all my cabbage seedlings and my lettuces and things like that all gave down, north down to about maybe two inches, which is indicative oh of the little little charmer coming back in. And I think it was <laughs> probably the fence. Uh, sorry, where the fence and the gate get rearranged every year, just that little bit um, by, I guess, the freezing and, and such. So, you know, the gap gets just big enough for a skinny spring um, groundhog to get through. Whether when he's fat in the summer he'll get through it, I don't know. <laughs> well, I wish you luck with that battle because I know that once they know where your food is, where where their breakfast bazaar buffet is, <laughs> um, they don't want to leave you alone, and they'll yes. do anything. 
<laughs> yes, well, I, I have a suspicion that he knows when we're not in the garden uh, for a few days. I think he's got some sort of internal radar that sort of can hear activity, so he stays away. Um, and then he notices when there's nobody here, so he sneaks in. I guess you'll just have to have, hire a couple of neighborhood kids to run screaming through your yard every day at noon and chase them away. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe I can borrow some neighborhood kids. <laughs> but um, one of the things that my sister-in-law had, which was she had a terrible woodchuck pro- problem, and those woodchucks actually got to the point where she could run out there with a broom or something and or a shovel and they wouldn't care they were just defiant yes and actually the community garden that i work in we had a a real problem with it and a trench was was drug uh, dug outside that was two foot deep and lined with um chicken wire so and that's the official way you know you have a six foot fence to stop him climbing up and um a lower fence but the little charmer has already found a way of getting back in. Um, we think he's coming in one of the other parts of the garden and has found a hole just big enough to squeeze in. So it's an ongoing battle when they really, um, when they really enjoy your garden. Um, and one of the guys was saying he saw it in the garden. He went up to it. It ran up and over the fence and then up into a tree. Um, oh, my. You know, just, and they're not <coughs> supposed to do that. <laughs> no, I, I didn't know that they were supposed to be able to climb that well. The, the, how is how's the gentleman's eyesight? Did he maybe confuse it with something else? Yes, yes. So, you know, it's one of those things that, um, you know, I think you just have to live with sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, I know that wildlife laws vary from place to place. In some places it's legal to shoot them. Others it's it's legal to trap and destroy. Um, So you haven't tried that? Well, I believe that they are trapped like um, I think it's have a heart uh, where you can put them in but when you're in a country area really and you've got lots of, of woods around you, know, you you can trap one but where are you going to put it you know you could take it to a wildlife area but there's a, there's a good chance there's going to be more around um, you know they make families and whatever um, and I think when you you know if one go if you take one off the rest, some more are going to arrive. It's just something that you have to live with. Um, and that's one of, the, I mean, one of the beauties of, of living in the country is that you get to enjoy wildlife and you can see the babies, the baby turkeys, for instance, wandering behind mama. Um, and so you just kind of accept a certain amount um, of, of damage. Uh, the groundhog is a little excessive, but so long as he doesn't come in, and do too much damage too often, we're, we're going to learn to live with him. <laughs> well, I guess sometimes that's the, that's the best way to do it, particularly if you're tender-hearted uh, like I am. But I'll tell you, when the raccoons got my chickens last fall, I was ready to kill every one of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because yeah, those chickens were my pets. Yes, yes. I think when you've got chickens, it's, 
um, a little different. Um, but, uh, you know, say we don't have any wildlife short of a couple of cats. So, <laughs> yes. Um, well, that's, uh, you, you don't have a coyote problem up there yet? Oh, no, no. They're pretty, they, I think they, most, um, we've got feral cats around, um, but I haven't noticed them really going into the garden except when it's freshly killed. You know, they might mark territory or something. Um, but usually I, I've not really found them to be a big problem, particularly when things are growing. They don't seem to worry about it. I, I haven't had any problem with cats, but we do have coyotes in abundance here. It used to be we'd just have a fox or two, but now um, there was even right in downtown Atlanta, right by uh, WSB Studio, there was a coyote there one morning. <clears throat> and that's, that's a whole different sort of animal. Yes, <laughs> and they eat the feral cats too, which is... And small dogs, they will carry them off. I don't know that they would take off. I would would hope that they would take care of the the, the woodchuck problem, but who knows? Who knows? I can't believe that 15 minutes has gone by already, and so we're going to have to take a little break. But when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about your travels this year because you have been on the road a whole bunch. We'll be right back with more of America's Homegrown Veggie Show right after this. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Kate Copsey, who is the author of, let's see, her first book was The Downsized Veggie Garden, and that came out the beginning of this year, How to Garden Small Wherever You Live, Whatever Your Space, and then you've got one that just came out, which is the um, month-by-month gardening book for New York and New Jersey. That's right. right. 
That's right. Um, actually, the second one was supposed to come out August 1st, but obviously we got ahead of the game, and it came out July 5th, I think it was. So literally, uh, it's about 10 days old. <laughs> and, and, and actually, it, it was um, a really interesting book um, to write, uh, because um, if you consider um, the, the, the New Jersey side, you know, we go down almost to a zone eight. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's one of those, and, you know, New York goes up to about a four. So, you know, that great distance is, um, you know, between an eight and a four, there's a whole heap of of different variances between what you can do when. Um, the short, um, short summer season for the north um, and a very long season for the south. But the, the, the other thing is that most of us are in between a five, five, six, and seven, which I think are the perfect growing zones for so many things. There's very little you can't grow, whether it be um, shrubs and vegetables or whether it be, be um, you know, that you can grow a lot of them. So, you know, it, it's just kind of mo most people, I think, were in the five, six, and seven. So it may, it's got a, a huge plant palette. It certainly does. Well, not for nothing did they call New Jersey the Garden State. And, of course, southern New York has some wonderful growing conditions. But, by golly, I remember going up with a church work camp up to the Tupper Lake area. We were painting an old church for some parishioners that were too old to do it themselves. And, and, uh, and I remember their gardens were very, very much farther behind than we, are, we were. And we, the only place we had to bathe was in the lake. In the lake, it felt like, like you're walking in ice cubes. Um, so, yes, I'm familiar with both of those growing seasons. And, of course, down here, we're zone 7, 8, where, where I am. I'm a little closer to Zone 7, or a little more in Zone 7, because we're up at the foothills of the mountains, which, which makes it nice, which makes it nice. Okay, so this year you've been on your book tour for your first book, The Downsized Veggie Garden, and you were at the Northwest Flower Show, you were at the Philly Flower Show, that's a biggie, that is a real biggie, um, and then last, just last week, you were at Cultivate 16, and that's a big showcase for industry professionals to show what's new, what's coming out, what's going to be on the market. What did you learn there? Well, I think um, one of the big things was that, um, obviously, veggies, there weren't that many of them this year. Um, it seems like succulents might be coming in, maybe with green roofs and things like that, um, which surprised me. But I, I, I honestly don't think um, the, the, the veggie growing is declining, but I think just the new people that are getting into it and bringing out new products and new varieties, they, they, maybe they just weren't at cultivate show um, as I say a lot of them were maybe tropicals and things like that um, but not, not too many veggie ones which, which was a little disappointing 
Um, but I, as I say, I don't think the veggies are declining. I think it's just different ways maybe that people have got to, to grow them. Um, in Philadelphia, though, one of the rather interesting um, exhibits there was a floating garden. And it was almost like um, an inner tube around the outside that it had um, a base to it, all, all made out of, I guess, plastic or rubber. And then the base was filled with soil and plants. And that was floating on a little, I guess, ri river type thing. Um, Disney so, had done something. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, Disney had done something like that with flowers um, the last time I was there. They had lots and lots, you know, had, they've got so many lakes and water features there. And, um, and they were they were showing that with veg, with with the flowers rather than the veggies, and I know that when I was working um, in a little water garden store here, they were becoming very popular. That's a few years back now. So, did you see? I, I know there was a big push for um, for container sized. Fruits and you know small fruits like blueberries and raspberries and stuff is are they're still coming out with new ones? I believe there are still some in the pipeline, um, but I I didn't actually see any um, shall we say any evidence of of too many new ones. There is a pixie grape has come out, which is a container grape and it's supposed to only get about eight inches high. 8 to 10, 12 inches high maybe, and it's supposed to produce real um, normal-sized grapes. I had that last year. It didn't survive the winter. Uh, I left it outside in the, the um, container, which makes me think it's probably going to be a little too tender for most of the country. Um, so I'm not quite sure, you know, what, what the problem was. Maybe it didn't get enough water over the winter. I'm not sure. Uh, well, but that's, one, that's one of the exciting ones coming out. Um, and of course, there, there are a couple of um, container-sized apple tr trees um, as well. Um, but I think those have been around for quite a while because towards the um, maybe the early 20th century, um, that there were trees coming out that had been grafted with um, three or four different varieties of apples, for instance. And so people have been doing that um, for quite a while. Um, and I don't know about the container ones, but they've got obviously dwarfing, extreme dwarfing um, roots to them. And then the apple trees themselves are colonnade-type apples that probably get to about five or six feet high, but only about uh, 18 inches wide. Um, and, of course, you, you for the, as with all apple trees, you need to have two different ones to produce the, um, the fruit, uh, one of those unusual fruits in nature, you know, apples and the whole, I think it's all, all except peaches maybe um, that don't need pollinators, um, but you have to have a totally different apple tree and of course you've got to have them in flower at the same time. So that's a bit of a challenge, particularly when you're, you know, in a small property 
and you're trying to grow these things in containers, you've got to have two, two different ones to even get um, the fruit. And the same happens, actually, if you're doing um, the, the ones, the espaliered ones across um, a fence or something like that to save space. Again, that only gets to about 18 inches depth, but you get normal-sized fruit on them. But you've got to still have two of them, um, well, which stops so, people some, doing it. Yeah. Uh, some apple trees are relatively self-fertile, like stamen wine sap, for example. Um, it's not particularly picky. Um, I only have the one now, and it still produces the other. My other apple trees are long since gone because we planted them when they first moved here. Um, but so there are, and I would think that somebody has probably put out a a doubly grafted tree, you know, with two varieties on the same on one rootstock that would have. Uh, that would be compatible. I will have to look that up, and I will put it on our Facebook page if I find out. So there weren't anything new like the brazzleberries that came out a few years ago? Um, I don't think there's been any new ones in the blueberry um, area. Um, There is a raspberry that has come out um, that's on a dwarf size, Um, and I believe it's thornless. I think, I think it was a thornless one, which is a, a great advantage, having just been into the raspberry patch this morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> and anything that doesn't have thorns on it is great. <laughs> well, yes, but it's, you know, I, I've tried several thornless blackberries and raspberries before, or thornless or semi-thornless, and I haven't found that most of them have the flavor of some of the old-fashioned ones, even if you do get all scratched up when you go out to pick. Oh, yes. Um, but the Heritage, which is one of my favorites, um, mm-hmm. that, 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 that one um, produces on old wood at the beginning of the year, so you get a little bit, um, a reasonable um, fruit that, that year um, but then towards the end of the summer it's producing on new wood so it's doing double duty and the really heavy harvest is probably um, mid-August um, and we had enough last year to be freezing and making jams and the whole kit and caboodle just from one double row of, of um, fruits so that, that was kind of fun. Um, although next time I'm going to grow just a single line of raspberries because when you put them in a square, you can't get in the middle of the dark. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no matter, how, no matter how, how far you apart, you know, two foot or three foot, they always seem to be able to fill in the middle bit. <laughs> well, and they do. That, you know, they, most berries, well, most raspberries, um, will put out extra canes, and and blueberries will do it too. I've got blueberries who were planted, I think, ten feet apart, and they've all grown together now. After thirty years, there's no space between them. Oh yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Fortunately, we can pick on both sides of the fence, so we can get at most of it. But I remember my grandmother's berry patch in Wisconsin, and 
that sucker was so thick that every now and then my grandfather would just come out with a tractor and bush hog part of it because it oh, was yes. it was just so much. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, and actually, earlier this week, I, I was in the gooseberry patch as well. Um, you know, to- totally unsociable plants, <laughs> but grapefruit. <laughs> And I was able to preserve a couple of those, and we had a couple of uh, gooseberry pies as well. Um, so really worth growing if you can grow them. There are certain areas where you can't grow them or, or you're restricted with the variety um, because they are an alternate host for, um, I think it's one of the spruces. Um, so you have to be careful that you get the right variety. But, um, but they're worth growing, very sweet and really an unusual fruit over here. I don't think I've ever had a gooseberry here, though I had some in Holland when I was over there when my dad and I were doing some genealogy research. Well, we have to take another little break, but when we come back, we'll talk more about gardening right here on America's Homegrown Veggie Show. We'll be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.QuickStake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Kate Kotze, author of The Downsized Veggie Garden. That came out the beginning of this year, and the early new book that she has about month-by-month gardening in New York and New Jersey. So, Kate, before the break, we were talking some about your travels, and one of the other places that you went to this year was on the President's Tour. It's given by the GWA, which is the Garden Communicators um, Association. And what did you see there in Charlottesville? Oh, we were down at the Monticello um, place. And, uh, and of course, Jefferson was a great gardener. Uh, so we had had great fun there. Um, we went around the house um, 
I'm not sure that it was open at the time, so we had a private tour of that. But being gardeners, we were, and being me, I've spent most of the time in the vegetable garden, um, which was re really neat. Some of the ways that they were supporting, putting up the supports for the beans and the peas and things like that, um, which they used some of the older methods for doing that, like the um, the cross um, bits. And that, that was really fascinating, how they keep to those. Um, but I came, came away with, um, of course, um, one of the uh, beans that apparently he used, um, and it's a, a purple bean. So the leaf is purple as well as the bean itself. Uh, the bean is probably six to eight inches long and has a really meaty flavor, which the purple beans tend to do rather than the green beans. Um, and it's called Potomac, and it is one of those really long vining things. And I put it in without really thinking. And the first thing I realized was that it had traveled across the two-foot footpath and was going with the raspberries, which we talked about in the last segment. So I, and, and they twined so quickly that, that it was becoming almost impossible to, to get across. So you have to kind of keep at them to go on the right side and go up the fence that you've given them uh, rather than go their own way, um, which is always fun with, uh, with plants. That uh, This bean is very, a really fast grower once it gets started. I think they will get into probably a foot to two foot a day um, with those, those, um, the twine. So it was really, um, you have to keep at it a little bit. Now, you mentioned at Monticello that they were using um, the crossed bits for bean support. Yes. What do you mean yes, by kind, that? Kind of, kind of a trellis. So you've got um, you, you, you've got kind of the bits go, going across in both directions, um, and uh, you know for, for the peas particularly, they they use kind of twigs where you put kind of the twigs um, down the row, and the, the twigs are probably branching twigs that are probably maybe two to three foot, and you just kind kind of make a hash um, across the top with them, so they're crossing over the, the middle. Um, to support the peas. Uh, these, these weren't trellising peas. These, these were the smaller ones. Um, I guess they do the, um, the beans they, they did on, on higher, higher trellises. Again, they were made out of natural wood um, and I guess clippings from, from trees and fruit trees and things rather than going to the hardware store and buying a trellis. Um, so these were all done in the same way, presumably, that, uh, that Jefferson illustrated. They've got a lot of his, uh, his books still there. And one of them, actually, that I picked up was um, edited by Edwin Morris Betts, but it's called Jeff Jeff Thomas Jefferson's Garden Book. And it kind of tells you what he's doing year-round and how he developed the garden, and it's taken directly from his diary, which is a fascinating book if you like um, old gardens and you know what they did with uh, with vegetables. Have you read any of his diaries themselves? Uh, no, that that one actually is the only one um, that I've got. Um, but I, the the only other diary type one that I've had like that were medieval or, or sort of early. Um, gardeners 
And there are a couple of them, like Wilfred Strabo. Um, he did a, um, a book called Hortalus, uh, which, again, is uh, written in that same diary idea, um, what, what he did at, at which, on which day. Um, and I think he, he was a... Many of the, these were in monasteries, and so they were secluded from the general um, populace, but they did, did make their own medicines and things like that. Um, and this particular guy was kind of almost a recluse and so was trying to hack out the vegetables and put a vegetable patch in, um, in, in basically rocky Mediterranean soil or lack of soil, rocks rather than soil. Um, and he talked about some of the things that he was encountering, like the dandelions and things like that. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating, easy-to-read book. But, but it's, again, it's done like a diary. Uh, and this was just one particular... Uh, I think that it just spans may, maybe one year or one season. But, uh, but they're fun books to, to read because, really, gardening transcends not just generations but, uh, but centuries. And, you know, a lot of the things that we would, it really doesn't change that much, short of the fertilization side of it. And maybe we do more in plastic containers than they did. Um, but they, they were doing many of the things that we're doing, struggling with supporting beans. Um, they, they were struggling with weather and ice coming along when you didn't expect it and frost coming along when you didn't expect it. Um, so so it's, it's fascinating, at, but in, at the same time, it's a comfort, I think, and gardeners kind of are doing the same thing. It gives you that uh, um, contact with the, with the earth and in the same way that generations and centuries of people have been doing. And if you will email me the... Um the titles of these books, I will get those up on the Facebook page, too, because I'm sure most people are not familiar with them, um, the authors or the books. The reason I asked about Jefferson's diaries is I haven't read all of them, of course, because they're, some of them aren't published, weren't republished, and some of them, well, he wrote for years and years and years in very detailed accounts of what was going on in his garden and how they were trying how he was trying new varieties and how he was coping with the weather like the glass cloches and like the the hillside pits that held uh, it held in the heat and they would start in the winter and put a load of manure in the bottom and let it start heating up and starting to compost and that would provide heat for um for the early vegetables and i remember reading that he loved his melons and he went on and on in one section about how how it was difficult to get the melons because he was on a mountain side and uh, and some of the ways that he was overcoming that. And so oh, that's yeah. a good read. That's a good read for people that um, are interested in history and interested in um, how to do things. Because now there's, oh, a yeah. big, there's a big movement with energy costs being as high as they are to go back to pit greenhouses and, um, and cold frames, hot beds, 
you know, just to keep things warmer in a changing climate, because our climate is changing. I don't care which side of the equation you're on, but I, I've seen it in my own lifetime, and that's discarding the, the highs and the low temperatures, um, you know, that, that you get every year, you know, someplace in the world is going to get um, some extremes of weather. Oh, but yeah. when I'm when I'm talking when I'm seeing a lot of is the the seasonality has changed. Things that didn't used to bloom until you know May are blooming now in April and sometimes even in March. And that's you know that that's a big change. That's a really yes. big change. Yes, and and of course that affects um, the pollination of mm-hmm. different things and um, you know if you've got things that are blooming too early um, you know what's going to be pollinating your squash for instance which needs something like about 30 odd um, pollination hits before it'll produce the, the squash um, and of course the very early uh, blooming things like, like chives and things you know they, they help in sunflowers in the summer um, but, but when things are are shifted around. Um, you know, the, the plus side might be that you you will get things blooming a little bit later in the fall, uh, which is when things like squash, for instance, if you notice towards um, September, um, the squash you've still got the flowers there. In the early season, you only get the male flowers come out, and then the, the female ones come. But although you've got both um, flowers at the end of the the season, you tend to get kind of misshapen, small, hard fruit. And that's an indication that you're not getting enough pollination. And let's face it, by September, you're sick to death probably of squash anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that used to be the case. But when we lost lost so many pollinators maybe 10, 15 years ago, it was. It got really, really tough to grow a decent crop of squash unless you were hand pollinating, and hand pollinating is easy enough to do. You just take a soft brush or a Q-tip, and you go from a male flower, that's the one on a stalk, and take it over to the female flower, which of course is the one that's got a little squash or cucumber behind it, and and pollinate that way. Or you can be mean and you can rip off the male flower, take the petal off, and um, just use the important parts of that to pollinate. But now, fortunately, in my garden, I have pollinators back. Um, uh, the, the native bumblebees have come back in, in larger numbers, and we've got lots and lots of other little tiny flies and things. Which brings us oh, yeah. to, to something that you wanted to mention, and that is attracting more pollinators to your garden. We've got about a minute and a half in this segment, so we can get started on that and do more when we come back from the break. Now, what do you grow in your garden to help pollinators? Well, I've got kind of a mixed garden, I think. You know, the vegetables are part of the the main garden in many places. Um, but I think, you know, things, things like sunflowers, where I've got um, a bird feeder, which is at the edge of the garden, and there's always sunflower seeds in the bird feeder, and that kind of, they germinate quite happily. And as I'm looking out of my window, actually, 
from from the studios we're recording, there's a couple of sunflowers that, that are in bloom and a couple that are off just bloomed last week. But they're, they're covered with things like finches and bees and butterflies. And then those, those can also visit um, the perennial bed and the vegetable garden because they've got the, um, the beans are in flower. The tomatoes are in flower. But I think, as you mentioned, the squash is the one that really the early season ones and the late season ones. So I think you need asters and things like that to the late season to keep them coming on. Um, Hollyhocks and and, um, that type of flower, they're great for pollinators as well. Um, you know, anything that, a variety of things, things for them, daisy type things for them to land on, um, tube type things that they can suck out of, just to mix them all up. And I think you get a much better overall crop of vegetables as well as a very colorful garden. Okay, we have to take another break right now, but we'll be back right after. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Kate Copsey, author of The Downsized, Downsized Veggie Garden, How to Garden Small Wherever You Live, Whatever Your Space, and also of the brand new one that's only been out for about 10 days, and that's the Months by Months Gardening for New York and New Jersey. And, Kate, you've had the advantage of living in a lot of these places. And, obviously, um, you came from a different country. So your parents were – did you garden when you were in England or or not? Um, not really, except everybody obviously does have a garden um, in England. And I remember that the last garden that, that we were in – um, I noticed there were different sorts of mint in there, and that was maybe my first um, internalization that there were different mints and there were different varieties of things. I'd always thought of mint as being mint is mint is mint, and now I was faced with an apple mint, a spearmint, and a peppermint, 
And I didn't know the names of them at the time, but I, I certainly recognized them as being different. Um, and then we moved o- over to Buffalo, New York, which is um, a less than habitable place for when you're learning to garden. <laughs> Although people are very sharing. <laughs> um, and Buffalo and has some wonderful yeah. gardens, but their gardening season is short. And, yeah. you know, it reminds me of when I was a kid because anything that would freeze above ground had to be brought in. Um, so, yes. and, But now they do, do great garden walks every, every mm-hmm. summer. Um, yep. It's become famous for its garden walks. Um, but this was sort of 30 years ago. <laughs> I, I'm not yeah. sure what was quite happening there. Um, and, then, and we've also lived in, in Albany, New York, which was um, a remnant uh, beach. So that was very sandy, a little bit like we are now. Um, so, so I have lived in a couple of these places, which I guess is why they uh, decided that I was qualified to write this book. <laughs> well, it helps when you... A, have gardens there, and B, know other people like other garden writers that can answer questions if you don't remember um, just how you did things or when or whatever. And, of course, we have to remind people of the Cooperative Extension Service. Extension has bulletins and booklets, and they usually have master gardeners handy to answer your gardening questions. And... They very often, the master gardeners will go out and and do garden talks or set up in front of a store and offer garden information. And so we need to make use of all the resources that we have, the books, extension, um, people like us that just, you know, get on and talk gardening. And right before the break, we were talking about pollinators and one of the things I'd like to remind people of is the Million Pollinator Garden Challenge. We first talked about this with Diane Blazik, um, I guess, last last winter sometime. And what you do, it, did you know that pollinators are responsible for one in every three bites of food we eat? That's amazing and so we really need to help them out because they've been having a hard time and all you have to do to take the million pollinator garden challenge is install nectar or pollen producing plants in your garden or your yard or even in a window box and register your pollinator friendly garden at the million pollinator garden challenge site so that's pretty cool but you know one in three that's amazing, and I I really noticed when the um, when the bees started dying off here, down the other pollinators. Um, like I like I said, I had to hand pollinate because there just weren't enough pollinators to go around. And now I have lots of pollinators to help, and I haven't had to hand pollinate my squash at all this year, and it makes me so happy. Um, so you mentioned that you have sunflowers. Do you have zinnias and the like? Um, I don't actually have zinnias this year. Last year I did. Um, I, I like perennials more than anything else um, because it, things like zinnias, they're, they're great, great if you spread them out. Um, so I have grown those in, in the past. Um, but I think when, when you go to perennials, things like the bee balm, 
um, is, is a great perennial. Um, in the vegetable line, the chives are, can be used to kind of to line things, um, you know, gardens and things like that. And that, that's one of the earliest ones to come out. Um, I'm not a big fan of, of roses, but they do attract uh, pollinators, particularly the heirloom roses, because they have the scent as much as anything else. Um, Agastache, Annie's hyssop, is another mm-hmm. one that's out there right right now um, that's in bloom, and that that will have um, pollinators on it. And if you consider, for instance, the um, the Annie's hyssop, the flower on that is kind of a almost like they're set onto a tube type thing, so the pollinators can um, they use that slightly differently to a sunflower or the the bee balm, which is a flatter. Uh, landing surface, shall we say, for the pollinators. So you get different varieties, whether it be um, bees or hummingbirds or spiders, who are all different pollinators. And and I think when you mix things up, particularly, and and you put those, those close to the garden, like basil, for instance, that has great summer flowers. Um, it does, though. Though yeah. I think the quality of the basil itself goes down once it starts to flower. What do you think? Um, well, some, some, um, something like a lemon balm. Uh, when that goes out to start putting up seeds, the the leaves at the bottom tend to go brown and yucky. Um, and lemon balm always attracts lots of, of pollinators. Um, but if you don't, if you let it then go go to Seed, you'll get lemon balm everywhere. So, so my yes. trick with, with that is to let it let it flower, and just past flowering, it's got the, all those brown leaves because it's putting all its energy into the seed. Lop it off at that point, and it will come up with fresh leaves again. Now, that probably doesn't that leaves it for the pollinators, um, but stops you getting it everywhere. Um, so, so that's kind of a happy land, shall we say, <laughs> between letting it go to seed um, and lopping it off before the flower is actually out. Uh, but I think, think the, the more pollinators you get into a garden, the, the better the garden, the more productive a garden is going to be. I mean, we talked earlier about apple trees. You need two different apple trees trees, varieties of apple trees, to get a fruit. And that's fairly early in the year. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, almost the forsythia time of year when those, those bloom. So you've, you, you've got to have early blooming things to be able to get the apple pollen from A to B uh, for it to work. And so you need to really think of, I, I think you need to think of um, a succession of perennials and annuals that will start early in the year and of course shrubs as well um you know start early in the year and go all the way through to the fall so that um you know you've got things all the time um to help the pollinators which then find your vegetables and gives gives you healthier tomatoes and beans which and squash of course (laughs) Yeah, and it, it's so so important for some plants. But when I read that thing about one in three bites of food comes with the help of a pollinator, that just blew me away. And people don't realize how important it is for us to support the wild populations too. It's not you know you, the honeybees got the big press because 
you know, honeybees are a million, multi-million dollar business for farmers to rent hives. Um, but there are little things like mason bees that I had for years. All I had pollinating my apple tree was was mason bees because all of the honeybees had disappeared. And now I've got lots of varieties of little bees. Now you mentioned bee bomb, and I have to warn people. Um, I had read when I was a fairly new gardener, I'd never grown bee balm, but I read that it attracted butterflies. And I said, how wonderful. I will put them right next to the driveway so I can see them when I go in and out. Well, what I didn't really think about was their name, bee balm. Um, it's very attractive, as you mentioned, to bees. And it was kind of, even though honeybees won't bother you when you're working in the garden, if if you don't bother them. It was a little um, worrisome going past them and between them and my car to get to the mailbox. And you hear this ominous, you know, you can tell that when I was brushing past them, and they were a little little unhappy with me. So if you're going to plant bee balm, plant it away from the kids' play sets, plant it away from the garden path, um, just, you know, someplace where the bees can be happy and um, and do their thing. And that reminds oh, me yeah. also, bees need water. So putting out a water source for them and for other pollinators is essential. Bees also drown, though. So put something in it like a rock. If you're using a bird bath or a shallow pan, put a rock or something in it so that they can climb up. Or oh, yes. Yeah. Take a bunch of wine corks and wire them all together and float those in there so that they have a place to climb. Yeah. And in fact, I, I was, I think it was sometime last year, I picked something, brought it into the house and noticed there was a little bee on it. He was obviously half asleep. Cause I think it was dark by then. But he, he was just dozing. It was just a, a native mm-hmm. little brown one. And so I just took him back outside and I put him under the lilac bush and we went on. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think you do need bees. And, you know, people get frightened of them. You know, we, we had, um, I think, a nest under under the ground, but it was over by the, the shed, not particularly in anybody's way. And the kids freaked out and wanted to kill them and couldn't quite understand, well, it, they're not in, in anybody's way. I mean, this wasn't a big um, thing hanging down or anything that was going to hurt anybody. They were just out of the way, and it was one of the native bees. So they, they just kind of, I guess when, when the frost arrived, they disappeared, um, and they were fine. Um, you know, you, you've got to live with a certain amount. Um, to, to pick your arguments with nature, shall we say. Yes. Choose what, one argument that I will, I will uh, take with anything, with a flying, stinging thing, is with yellow jackets. We almost oh, yes. always have yellow jacket nests in the yard, and my husband just got stung again the other way when he was out there cleaning up the weeds. And we're about out of time for today, but again, t- tell people what your books are and where they can get them. Oh, well, most of them are on Amazon, but you can also get, get a signed copy on my webpage, which is Um The brand new one, the month-by-month gardening New York and New Jersey. Uh, that, that one is uh, just 25 
dollars and the downsized veggie garden is a little cheaper that one is just 20 dollars but they come signed and you don't pay postage on it i i pay the postage um so they can on and of course they're available on amazon and they they are in barnes and noble and your local library as well and your local bookstores don't forget to to post oh yes yes go take care of them so that they will be there when when we need them that is all the time we have for today but thank you for listening to america's homegrown veggie show and we'll see you next week This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.